have always been the type of pastor, always been the type of person that can, um, God has uniquely used me to kind of um, sense the barometer of where the church is at and where God's people are at um, early before things start happening. A couple of years ago, I kept saying, that there was, um, I taught this church, I think we were over at 5,600 as a matter of fact, and I kept talking about apostasy, that there was a great falling away that was coming, and I don't think people really understood it because at that time, mega churches were still blossoming and everything was still wonderful and everything was still great, and the Lord kept saying to me and kept showing me how there was going to be great um, um, a, a, a falling away that is going to happen, and it's going to be, it's going to be due to a lack of knowledge. The Bible says my people perish because of a lack of knowledge. That when we are not clear, when we're not solid, when we don't believe what we should believe and be solid on it, we will always be swayed, we will always be moved. Um, is the teenage class in here? Yeah, because they're not supposed to be, I saw some teenagers, I don't see them in here, amen. Let's go find them, amen. Because even the teens need to be in here. They need to understand their spiritual heritage. Amen. All right. And so I want to, um, and so I kept seeing this and I kept seeing this. And all of a sudden on social media, I saw it pop up over and over and over again. I saw popping up over and over again um, this false doctrine theology that kept telling you and I that Christianity is a white man's religion. And something on the inside of me said, that just ain't, that can't be the truth. Um, and so I, I did my research. Now, I want to kind of give you some guidelines on the front of this. Number one, I'm not an expert. I want to be clear on that. I'm not an expert. As I'm learning, I'm teaching, okay? So I want to be clear about that. So I might not be able to answer all your questions. Praise God. I don't have a doctorate in this. Amen. I'm going to give you as much as I can, all right? But number one, I want you to understand I'm not an expert. But I need you to understand the root of where this actually comes from. You will never believe where this actually comes from. This thinking that Christianity is a white man's religion, watch this, actually started about a hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, by guess who? The Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Okay, stay with me. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad, uh, founder of the Nation of Islam, he started a narrative that acted as if Christianity was introduced to African people post the Middle Passage. As if African people were only experiencing Christianity during slavery. That that was the only time they were introduced to it. And most of that narrative, most of that narrative has taken hold over the last 100 years. I need you to hear this. And has colored the way the quote unquote conscious movements look at Christianity. Okay. Now I'm going to get very specific and I need to get very detailed. Conscious movements. Um, there are a lot of them now that you don't even realize that they are conscious movements. I know you love Dr. Umar Johnson. That's a conscious movement. Pan-Africanism. That's a conscious movement. There's a lot of things that we grab hold of that we don't fully understand the depth of it. That they take all kind of different stuff tied together and they create their own thing. Okay? And while Conscious movement, let me get on the end of that. So conscious movement to you is being woke. Okay. 
And so it has colored how the quote-unquote conscious movements of today look at Christianity. The idea carries that Christianity was forced on us, and it completely, hear this, it completely ignores the first 1,000 years of Christianity that was actually developed in Africa before it even made it to Europe. And I am going to show you over the next couple of weeks how to reclaim your faith so that you will not be hijacked any longer by the foolishness of these concepts that are being put out there that have no rooting in facts. Listen, you don't even have to be a Christian. You can just look at history. And history will show you that Christianity is, uh, I'm reading a book, and I'm going to lay this out um, um, next week about early African Christianity. And in the beginning of the book, the, um, it's a, a white gentleman, I can't remember his last name, Ogden or something like that. He literally lays out, he said, um, Christianity is more African than camels. Because Christianity was introduced 100 years before camels ever showed up in Africa. But this is the thing that we, we are not taught history. So I want to us to kind of lay this out and get down into this. Um, and so on tonight, I'm going to be talking about black people in the Bible. Come on. Now, it's a lot of slides on there, so you have to go with me. As soon as you hear it, go to it, all right? Um, black people in the Bible. And what I first want to deal with, number one, is the Bible and race. The Bible and race. How does the Bible look at race? What is the perspective of the Bible when it looks at race? Because it is not uh, how we look at it. And I want to show you this. I'm going to give you some concepts. You might not be able to get all this. I'm going to kind of, I'm trying to go as quickly as possible because I got a lot to get through. So I want to show you a couple of things about the Bible and race, some foundational things. Come on, let's go. There are profound differences in the concept and attitudes of race in the Bible versus Eurocentric interpretation. Most of our theology has been hijacked by Eurocentric interpretation. But the way the Bible writers saw and used race is vastly different from how Eurocentric interpreters saw race. What we will see in the Bible about race is night and day different from what Eurocentric interpreters looked at the Bible and how they saw it. Here's the second thing. Biblical authors were color conscious, but not on, as a basis of enslavement, oppression, or demeaning identity. Okay? Uh, biblical authors were color conscious, but they didn't look at it as you were a different color, so it, was, it meant that we need to enslave you, oppress you, and demean your identity. There is, a, there, there is an awareness that you're darker than I am, but there is nothing attached to this awareness that says you're less than I am. And I'm going to show you this in the Bible. It's going to blow your mind. In fact, biblical writers, when it's based on divisions of people, it was not based on skin hue or the hue of the skin. It was based on, watch this, nationality and language. Nationality and language. Not what color you were. What country you were from. What language did you speak. And I want to show you this quote. This is going to mess you up like it messed me up. Come on, let's go. Uh, the, the very category of race denoting primarily skin color was vastly, was first employed as a means of classifying human bodies by Francois Benner, a French physician, look at that date, in 1684. The first authoritative 
racial division of humankind is found in the influential book, The Natural System, that was published in 1735 by Cor uh, Carolus uh, Linnaeus. Uh, Dr. Cornell West is, that's, I'm citing him. Now, what you have to understand about this is the division based on race does not come up, listen to this, in scholarship until 1684, which means it could not have been what you see in biblical writers who are writing thousands of years before. The Bible was written thousands of years before 16, whatever that is. So this concept of race dividing is not a part of the mindset of biblical writers. The people who wrote the Bible, that is not even a concept in their mind that we need to separate people based upon color. How they saw it was, you lived in a different place than where I live from. You spoke a different language than what, what I speak. That is what they were looking at. When we, when we take Bible and use it as a racial oppression, we are taking a modern standard and throwing it back on the Bible. Are y'all with me? Okay, here's number three. Let's go. There is a very prevalent presence of blacks in the Bible, but we are unaware. And I want to give you a couple of reasons why we are unaware that there's a very present, uh, 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 prevalent presence of blacks in the Bible. Number one, here we go. We detach Northern Africa from Africa. Mm -hmm. I'm from Miami, 305, all day long. But when people try to say Florida is crazy, I try to tell them, well, Miami ain't Florida. I mean, once you cross that line, that's a whole nother state. That's how I look at it. That's where I'm from, okay? You know, when it, it, it's, it's completely different. Now, no matter how much I say that, Miami is still a part of Florida, okay? And there are many over the years who want to make Egypt not a part of Africa and want to make Egyptians white. Because the last time I checked, the biggest, one of the biggest movies was Cleopatra and the star was Elizabeth Taylor. Do you see how the Eurocentric perspective is applied to the Bible? Okay, I'm trying to get you somewhere. If Moses Catch this, I've said this before. If Moses and Jesus can hide out in Egypt, what that say they must look like? Come on, use your brain on tonight. You ain't got the Hokamashai on this one. Here's the next one. Biblical writers identified nationality and language, not color. There are people in scripture that you read over all the time that you may not know was a person of color. Come on, let's go. Trivialized or ignored by dominant interpretation. Where there is black presence by most dominant interpretations, it is either trivialized or ignored. We just don't even pay attention to it. Then try to interpret it or sweep it under the rug. Here's a little deeper, and I'll explain this over the next couple of weeks. Afro-Asiatic uh, are assumed and transformed into Anglo-Saxon. The presence of Afro and Asiatic people is transformed into Anglo-Saxon. So where you see black people in the Bible, interpretation just made them white. Let me be very clear. The color of Jesus don't matter to me as long as his blood is red. Okay, I want to be clear about that. But there's no way possible that Jesus had blonde hair and blue eyes. I want to be clear about that. So where does this come from? 
Where does this come from? Let's go. We need to talk about the de-Africanization of the Bible. Can, can we go deep tonight? Are y'all with me? I ain't lose y'all yet. Have I lost you? Okay, because we're going to go deep tonight. You're going to have to use your brain tonight. The de-Africanization of the Bible. There has been a deliberate attempt to take references to Africa out of Scripture and place them somewhere else. And this is the pro biggest problem we have to deal with. How do they do this? A couple of ways. Here we go. Denial of the presence of African nations and people in Scripture. You will find traditional reading in the 1600s and 1700s where individuals were not associated as even coming from Africa. So you would hear people like Simon of Cyrene. That's somebody in the Bible. Okay, I'm going to talk about him on tonight. Simon of Cyrene, which actually means Simon of Africa. Mm -hmm. This is the man that helped Jesus carry the cross. Because if you call him, catch this, Simon of Africa, now you are validating Africans and the descendants of Africans. So we need to whitewash it because we don't want you to know that, that, that we don't want to validate that this was actually a black man. Here we go. Let's go. I've already talked about this. Removal of Egypt from Africa and placement in the Western world. So now we act as if, and still people to this day, will take Egypt and try to place it in the Middle East. When you read traditional interpretation of theology, it is almost as if Egypt is not in Africa. They would rather connect it to the Western world or the Middle East, and we have to reclaim Egypt as an African country. Why do we need to reclaim Egypt as an African country? Here's the reason why. Because the Europeans stole from the Greek, but the Greeks stole from the Egyptians. Okay? And the Bible writers, if you read the Bible, it never detaches Egypt from Africa. They knew they were African. And I'm going to show you on tonight. Come on, let's go. Israel, only shaped by Mesopotamia and the Near East. That's a lie. So let me explain what Mesopotamia is. Mesopotamia is modern-day Iraq, Iran, Syria, and whatever that other country is that's right next to Syria. Okay? That is what uh, historically Mesopotamia was. And the thought is, in the Old Testament, Israel was only shaped by that area over there. And what you're going to see on tonight is that's not true. That, Egypt, uh, that, that Israel was predominantly shaped by Africa and especially by Egypt. And you'll see this on tonight. Come on, let's go. Identification of African nations hindered by the lack of maps drawn during that time, allowing peoples to be located outside of Africa. For example, the Garden of Eden. So the Garden of Eden, historically, if you look up any book today, will tell you that it ain't nowhere near Africa. When that's not true. Let me let me let me lay this out. Most of the maps that we have of ancient Africa were not drawn by people that lived during that time. They were defined, uh, they, they were drawn by European scholars, catch this, who read the Bible and tried to backtrace what they thought was Africa. So there was, there was not a map in 500 B.C. to say what it looked like. There are no surviving maps in five, from 500 B.C. to say what it looked like. Watch this. It was somebody in the 1600s who read the Bible and tried to read backward. The problem is, if you're reading your Bible and you don't think that Cush is Ethiopia, you will draw your map to suggest Cush was in Middle East. 
So the lens you go to the Bible is how you determine what is Africa or how you see Africa. And if you already determine that Africa is an inferior in, in individuality and in intelligence, you will not attach a major theme to Africa. You will place it somewhere else. For example, you will take the Garden of Eden and try to attach it to the Euphrates and the Tigris River in the Middle Eastern world because you are preconditioned to be against Africa. So it's like somebody of today's time trying to read something and then draw a map based upon what they read about something that happened in 500 BC. That's real hard, isn't it? And then later excavation will then prove to you that that's not where it was. There's a great documentary, documentary about, oh God, I talked about this before, about Christianity in Africa. It's about, no, it's about uh, the history of Africa, as a matter of fact. And the first episode talks about how Christianity came to Africa and it unveiled all this different stuff. I, I'll get it for you next week and I'll tell you what it is. I can't remember the name of it, all right? So first thing I want to show you in the Bible is, come on, prominent African nations in the Bible. Prominent African nations in the Bible. Prominent African nations in the Bible, okay? Um, the first one that I want you to look at, grab your Bible and go to Genesis, the 10th chapter. Now, that's not on that screen, is it? Genesis 10, that's not the next one? No, yeah. So grab your Bible, go to Genesis, the 10th chapter. Um, Genesis, the 10th chapter, is what we call the table of nations. And in Genesis, the 10th chapter, you're going to see the development of civilization through Noah and his sons. And there are some intentional things that we jump over when we read this that we don't realize it's a whole lot of black folk on this page. Okay? So I want, to, want you to kind of see this. The first African nation that we all know, that we're all familiar with, is Egypt. Let my people go. Okay, Egypt, all right? A second African nation that we're not familiar with, come on, let's go, is Cush, which is modern-day Ethiopia. Now, in your Bible, it's not going to say Ethiopia because Ethiopia was a name that came thousands of years later. They were originally called Cush, all right, or Cushai, all right? Um, if your Bible reads Ethiopia, it is because someone has already translated it for you. But most times, they don't translate it, all right? I'm going to give you another one. The other one is Sheba. Sheba. Now, we don't have direct evidence of where Sheba is, but we know it exists somewhere between Cush and Egypt. What we do know is that biblical writers identify Sheba as coming from the same area as Egypt and Cush, which means we can locate it in Africa. And another one that you don't hear much about, but it is in the Bible, is Ophir, or Ophir, O-P-H-I-R. Not many references in the Bible, but there are a few, and they are uh, African as well. These are prominent African nations in the Bible, um, Old Testament. But I need you to understand that you cannot look at these nations like nations of today. You know, nations of today have set boundaries. They have governments. Uh, Cush and Sheba especially were just broad areas. You would go to a village, 
and you would ask them what they are. And they say, oh, I'm Cush. And then all of a sudden, that means the, the territory was expanded. So it's just like, uh, you can't look at it like the states. You can't look at it like, you know, here's a, uh, the United States of America and Canada is on top of us. No, Cush would be all up through, up through Canada and come all the way down in some kind of way and reach all the way to Florida. Do you get that? It's not like boundaries that's set. So you have to see, see this from a different perspective. Now, the question is, how did the Israelites see these nations? Because your Old Testament is coming from the perspective of the Israelites, of the Jews. Why the Israelites? Why do we have to look from that perspective? Why? Because it's, that's who wrote the Bible. Israelites, the Jews, Old Testament. Every one of the books, 39, in the Old Testament were written by Jews. Jews wrote the Old Testament. So how did these Jewish writers view Africa? Because there are those that would go to Jewish writers to argue that the Bible views blacks as inferior and inhumane. And I want to suggest that that's not how they saw blacks and Africans at all. And I'm going to show you different scriptures on tonight. First thing I want to talk about is Africa and Israel. Uh, African and Israel. Egypt and Cush are always seen as African. So if you look at Genesis, the 10th chapter, it's a table of genealogy. It, it, it's meant to trace, the, uh, trace ethnicity, ethnicity after the flood through the sons of Noah. It traces what happens to them. Uh, Noah has three sons. Their names are Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. Um, they're the descendants of Noah. If you look at your Bible, you will see verse 2 through 5, Gives, follows Jephthah, okay, Jephthah. Uh, traditional theology, now this is going to blow your mind real good. Traditional theology and teaching is that Jephthah people migrated north and eventually became what you see in Europe, okay? The European nations come from these people right here. So as you see, uh, the sons of uh, Jephthah is Gomer, Magog, mm-hmm, Javen, uh, mm -hmm. uh-huh, uh-huh, the sons of Gomar, uh-huh, all them, yes, the sons of Javen, uh-huh, yes, mm-hmm, uh-huh, from these, verse number five, from these, okay, those would, those, it's debated, but it is believed that these are the people that end up being the Europeans, all right, okay, when you look at verse six through 20, 6 through 20, now we done reached Ham. Everybody say Ham. Ham. Ham is the one who was cursed with darkness over his skin in Genesis, the ninth chapter. Now, I'm going to come back to that next week because I, don't, I could teach on that for about 30 minutes about how that scripture was bastardized to make you believe that because you had dark skin, you were inferior. It is what the slaves owners used to justify the subjugation of black people. Preach, Philip. I, I want you to see that, okay? But we're going to talk about it next week because it's, it's too much time for me to take, take tonight. But I want you to notice something. I want you to see that Ham... Uh, how much larger their nations were over the other sons. Jephthah is verse 2 through, five, 2 through 5. Ham is 6 through 20. It's a lot of them. Okay? And verses 21 through 31 follow Shem. Okay? Now, I want you to see that. Okay? 
That's where we're going to lay it down. And if you see verse number 6 uh, in uh, Genesis 10, verse number 6, the sons of Ham is Cush. Everybody say Cush. Um, Mizram, Put, and Canaan. Everybody say Canaan. The sons of Cush are Seba. Everybody say Seba. Havilel, Sabat, no, you don't have to say these. Sabat, uh, Rama, and Sapteca. Okay? The sons of Rama are Sheba. Everybody say Sheba. And uh, Dedan. Now, do you see some names that I just mentioned? In that, in, that, in that genealogy that's listed off, okay? So you see some of those names, okay? And we're going to go deeper into that. First one I want to talk about is Sheba. Everybody say Sheba. Go to Psalms 70, uh, Psalm 72. Psalm 72, verse 8. Psalm 72, verse 8. Um, can I do this? I have a lot to get through, so I don't have time for y'all to turn. So it's going to be on the screen. I already put it up there. Just write it down. All right, because I need to move quickly. Psalm 72, verse number 8. The Bible says, may he rule. Uh, now, Psalm 72 is showing those who will come and pay tribute and honor to the Lord. That's what Psalm 72 is about. It's showing those who will come and pay tribute and honor to the Lord. All right. Psalm 72, verse number 8. May he rule from, the, from sea to sea and from, river, from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. Now, what is it saying? The context is to show, God is trying to show us the, how vast the reign of God will be. That what, what, who, who he reigns over will not just be regulated to those that are in Jerusalem. He's trying to show you the distance of those who will come and pay tribute to them. And so he says, from river to the ends of the earth, people will come and worship. The reason this is important, because the psalm is trying to show the range for which people will come and worship the Lord. From here to down there. Notice the parallel from Tarshish to Sheba. I need you to see that. From Tarshish to Sheba. And if Sheba is meant to represent the opposite of Tarshish, then Sheba is south, which means it's Africa. Tarshish is in the north. Sheba is in the south. So in the Israelite mind, the further south you can go would be Sheba, the southernmost end of the earth, and that is Africa. That's not the Middle East, y'all. Did your Bible say that? It did say Sheba, right? Okay, I just want to make sure your Bible said that. <coughs> Psalms isn't saying from east to west, but the psalm is saying from north to south. Okay? Isaiah 43, verse number 3. It's on the screen. Isaiah 43, verse number 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your steed. You see Seba right there? Now, <clears throat> there's a lot of debate about that word, that name Seba, because they believe that, that, that Seba should actually be translated Sheba. Why? Because we believe that uh, um, they, were, they were trying to take it out of Africa, but I need you to see this. It would make sense if he was saying Egypt, Cush, and Sheba. Because didn't I tell you Sheba was in the middle of Cush and Egypt? Okay? So it's all of the same region. Okay? So I want to give you something here. 
four dominant perceptions of Africa in the Bible. How did they see Africans? How did they see Africa? If we're looking at it from a Jewish perspective, how did they see Africa? All right, here's number one. They designated the furthest places to the south. So when they saw Africa, the first thing that came to mind was they was in the south. When people ask me where I'm from, sometimes I don't like to tell them Miami, I just say down south. Okay? Um, so it, it, they, in their mind, they saw it as the furthest place to the south. Let me prove it to you. Esther 1 and 1. It's on your screen. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to, you see that? Okay. Isaiah 11, 11. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from lower Egypt, from upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylon, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. Further south. Zephaniah 3 and 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. In the Jewish mind, they saw African or Africa or African people or black people as people that lived in the South. That's all. It wasn't nothing that they were anything less than them. They just saw them as a distance. And what the Bible is trying to show us, watch this, is the distance the hand of God can actually reach. Do you see that? Okay. Um, Second thing they saw Af uh, African nations or African people as military strength and protection. This is going to get deep right here. Military strength. They saw um, Africans or Africa as military strength and protection. Now, this messed me up real good. Because if you look at, even amongst black people, if you look at Africa from our 2020 perspective, most times when you say the word Africa, you think of half-naked people living out in huts. You think of jungles, okay? That's the perception because our Eurocentric whitewashed minds have been just twisted to automatically think that's what, that's what they are. Now, I need to clarify this. I want you to see how the Bible sees African nations. Catch this. Look at Hosea 7:11. Ephraim is like, the, like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt now turning to Assyria. Ephraim, God's people, he's saying you're easily deceived. Watch this, because when you should be coming to me, you keep running to them Egyptians. Come on, let's go. Uh, Isaiah 30, verse number one through two. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. Uh-huh. Who go down to without consulting me. Who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egyptians to Egypt's shade for refuge. Oh, y'all didn't know? They were none to be played with. They were a powerhouse. They were the greatest nation of that time. And so Israel is looking at them like, okay, we're in a tight spot. Let's run to them black people. They'll help us. 
They got it going on. Okay, let me give you one more. Isaiah 31, verse number one and verse number three. Um, is that when I just wrote? No. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of the chariots and the great strength of their horsemen. Do you see how they're looking at Egypt? Do y'all see that? Okay. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Yet he, uh, go to verse number three. But the Egyptians are mere mortals and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, those who help, who help will stumble. Those who are helped will fall. All will perish together. Now, I need you to see this. Egypt was the place that people went to find refuge to find aid, to, to find assistance in battle. Egypt was known for their military strength and domination. So why does God continuously prophesy the destruction of Egypt even after Israel uh, exists? I need you to see this. Why does God, why do you think God has a problem with Egypt? Come on, y'all can answer. Why do you think God has a problem with, with Egypt? like a refuge if you are God's people shouldn't you be coming to God not running to Egypt so before a theology is twisted in your head that God has a problem with Egypt he doesn't have a problem with Egypt he has a problem with his people going to places that you ain't supposed to go to he ain't got a problem with your boyfriend he got a problem with you He ain't got a problem with check cash and stuff. He got a problem with you. <laughs> See how we have twisted this thing and it's robbed us of what, what's really going on? That is why they, God had a problem with Egypt because they were powerful and Israel always ran to them. Israel always ran to them. Israel defined strength, power, and protection under the covering of Egypt. So God's displeasure partly with Egypt is to prove to Israel that Egypt is not stronger than I am. Y'all think that, that it's the highest source of protection. And because you keep running there, I have to cut it off so you will find out that they are not as strong as you think they are. But in the Israelite mind, none was greater than Egypt. So when they saw Africa, when they saw Egypt, they thought military strength. And you will find throughout the Old Testament, Israel trying to form alliances with Egypt to protect them from their, from their other enemies. And God says, call on me and I will have your back. Stop running to Egypt. How else did they see Egypt or, or African nations? Here we go. Here's the next one. They saw them with tremendous wealth. Tremendous wealth. Mm -hmm. Tremendous wealth. Where you get that from? Isaiah 45, verse number 14. Look what the Bible says. This is what the Lord says. The products, products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabaeans, they will come over to you and will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow before you and plead with you, saying, surely God is with you, and there is no other, there is no other God. But do you see that first part? The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush. Job 28, 19. He, uh, the topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. 
What's the next one? Uh, Psalm 68. Summon your power, God. Show us your strength, our God, as you have done before. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring you gifts. Rebuke the beasts among the reeds, the herds of bulls among the calves of the nations. Humbled, may, may the beasts bring bars of silver. Scatter the nations who delight in war. Envo en envoys will come from Egypt. Cush will submit herself to God. Sing to God your kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides across the highest heavens, the ancient heavens, who, thunder, who thunders with, might, with mighty voice. Mm -hmm. Proclaim the power of God whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the heavens. Verse number 35. You, God, are awesome in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. Watch this. In those scriptures, it kept talking about the gold the diamonds, the, the topaz. Well, where does that come from? Africa. Africa is one of the most resource-rich continents. Um, but they were pillaged by Europeans who come to snatch out the resources of the country for centuries. And biblical writers knew wealth resided in Africa. When you find references on how wealthy or valuable something is in scripture, it was valuable as the onyx of Ophir. You'll see that statement, onyx of Ophir. What did I tell you Ophir was? It was in Africa. I have traded Egypt. There's another scripture that said, I have traded Egypt as your ransom. In other words, Egypt is so wealthy that I'm willing to take the wealth of Egypt just to have you. You are so much to me that I will give all the wealth of Egypt for you, the wealth of Africa. Not the poor continent that we think of today. That is not how God saw them. That is not how they saw them. That's not how the Israelites saw them. That is what we have developed in our Eurocentric whitewashing. What else? How else did they see Egypt? I mean, uh, in uh, Africa. It was a place of wisdom. It was a place of wisdom. Africa is the cradle of, of intelligence. <clears throat> Isaiah 19, verse number 11 through 15. The officials of Zoan are nothing but fools. The wise counselors, the wise counselors, the wise counselors of Pharaoh give senseless advice. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am one of the wisest men, a disciple of an ancient king? Look what he says. How can you say that to Pharaoh? Because Pharaoh is wise. You stupid. <laughs> Where are your wise men now? Let them, show, let them show you and make known what the Lord Almighty has planned against Egypt. Again, he doesn't have a problem with Egypt. He has a problem with them running to Egypt. The officials of Zoan have become fools. The leaders of Memphis are deceived. The cornerstones of her peoples have led Egypt astray. That's the last verse. 14, yeah. Go back. The Lord has poured into them a spirit of dizziness. You know, I'm going to stop praying that. Lord, give them a spirit of dizziness. <laughs> they make Egypt stagger in all that she does as a drunken staggers around in his vomit. There is nothing Egypt can do, head or tail, palm branch or reed. Can I ask you something? I know I'm teaching uh, uh, real deep stuff, but 
Who in your life is getting cut down because you keep running to them? Because sometimes you can be attached to people and your attachment can bring on the wrath of God. Mm -hmm. Africa is the cradle of intelligence. In fact, 1 Kings 10 uh, is another scripture. It's not on the screen, but it's an interaction between Solomon and the queen of Sheba. Y'all know that story? A black woman who is a queen of a major nation who comes to visit Solomon. Catch this. She shows up. No. Go to 1 Kings 10. I don't want to even um, attempt to retell this. You need to read this for yourself. 1 Kings 10. And put a quarter in the meter. Y'all just, you know, hold on just a minute. All right? 1 Kings 10. I need you to see this. <clears throat> this thing messed me up. Queen of Sheba. Sheba is where? In Africa. This is a black woman queen. All right. Look what it says. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with, with a very great caravan with camels, watch this, carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attendant tending servants in their robes, his cupbearer and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, verse number six, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I didn't, didn't believe these things until I came and saw it with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was even told to me. In wisdom and in wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king and maintained justice and righteousness. Watch this. Word got out about this Solomon, this King Solomon. Watch this. But we didn't know if you were wise. Watch this. Your validity of your wisdom would had to be tested by a black woman. See, because you saw it in a different light. You got to see it from the other side of that. She had to show up and give him African riddles to see if he can figure it out to prove if he's even wise. Because wisdom at that time was always accredited back to, 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 to Africa. Do you see that? Do you see that? She said, now, if you can answer this, you wise. Okay? Catch this. Um, he is not deemed worthy to be called wise until the queen of Sheba can say, you pass our riddles. In that day and time, that was, the, that was the thought to be the hardest test. Can you stand the intelligence that comes out of Africa? It's funny that Solomon is not validated, help me right here, in the world until a sister says he is. Touch your neighbor and say, that's Bible, that's Bible. And here's what we miss. Here's what we miss. Here's what we miss. The Bible says homegirl shows up with all this wealth. Here's the question I had, Teresa. If she brought that with her, what she left back at home? 
She brings, catch this, the wealth that is comparable to what Solomon already has and what she, and she didn't even bring what she got at home. That tells you how much wealth and wisdom homegirl had. That's what she had on her. Ain't that something? Mm -hmm. Lord, let the sisters go back to being like this. Let not your purse be the most expensive thing you have. What you got at home? Mm -hmm. Think about the depiction of Africa. Israel's greatest, wealthiest, uh, still only match. Uh, Israel's greatest and wealthiest, catch this, still only match the gift that the Queen of Sheba gave. Now, we've heard for centuries, for a long time, Sol uh, Solomon is wise. He had all his money. But we skipped over the fact that when Sheba showed up, hers, what she showed up with was equivalent to what he already had. Didn't include what she left at home. Don't let people fool you about Africa in the Bible. Go to Numbers, the 12th chapter. Numbers 12. Are y'all getting something from this? I hope, I hope I'm, I'm opening your eyes. Hope I'm opening your, your eyes just a little bit. Because we still want to talk about the de- I'm still talking about the de-Africanization of the Bible. The de-Africanization of the Bible. Okay? Um, I want you to see this. Uh, Numbers, the 12th chapter, verse number 1. Very familiar story. I want to just lift up some things out of it that you might not have realized. Us is all up in here. Amen. <laughs> Numbers, the 12th chapter, verse number 1. If you have it, say amen. amen. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his uh -huh, Cushite wife. Thank you, Deke, for saying that word interracial because I'm going to talk about that just a minute, okay? Uh, his Cushite wife, which means Moses is married to a sister. Catch this. For he had married a Cushite. Verse number two. He has the Lord spoken only through Moses. They asked. They asked. The Bible says they asked. Now, who's talking against Moses? Aaron and Miriam. All right. Now watch this. Has has the Lord only has the Lord only spoken through Moses? They asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. You, okay, let me stop. I know I'm trying to teach y'all something, but I, I had to shout when I got to that place. Because there's some people who put their mouth on you and God hears every word. Okay. All right. I just want to say this. And the Lord heard this. Verse number three, now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out to the tent, tent of meetings, all three of you. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face. Okay, catch this. Clearly and not in riddles, he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Verse number nine, the anger of the Lord burned against them and he left them. Verse number 10, when the cloud lifted from above the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous. Like, what that word say? 
Snow. What color is snow? Okay, hold on. Stay with me. I want to talk about African, uh, uh, the attempts to de-Africanize the, the Bible. His, Moses' wife, they don't name her right here, but her name is actually Zipporah, okay? Uh, or Zipporah, however you want to say it. Attempts to de-Africanize uh, Zipporah by suggesting that there were two nations called Cush. Okay? This is where we get off. Because from a Eurocentric perspective, interpreters wanted to say that Moses could not have been married to a black woman, so there must have been another Cush that was somewhere else that was not in Africa. So they read it as, as a, watch this, a prohibition to interracial marriage. Zipporah is an Ethiopia, Cush, Ethiopia, Cush, Ethiopia. What is Cush? Ethiopia. Zipporah is an Ethiopia. She comes from Cush. Moses has married an Ethiopian. What is Miriam's real issue with Moses? What is, what is uh, Miriam's real issue with Moses? Okay? He married in Ethiopia. Verse 1 says that they are upset Moses married an Ethiopian. But when she asks the question, she asks, does the Lord only talk to Moses? Y'all didn't see that? Because verse 1 said you're mad that she's an Ethiopian, but when we finally ask you the question, you talking about something else. Okay? The issue is not that Moses has a black woman. The issue is that they don't like Moses' prominence. What she's actually saying is, aren't I equal with Moses? Aren't we on the same level? Where you get that from, Pastor? Because look what God says to her. I talk to my prophets in dreams and in visions. But with Moses, I talk to him face to face. In other words, we ain't on the same level, honey. You mad because I talk to him face to face. And you mad because I ain't saying nothing to you. You ain't on our level. How has Miriam identified that Moses is elevated? How has he, I want to just think about this. I'm going to push this. How has Miriam identified, if Moses is elevated, how has she identified that he's, he's elevated? Because he married an Ethiopian woman. Do y'all get that? You see the connection now? Because an Ethiopian woman was a sign of status. Look who Moses got on his arm. He think he's something now. I'm trying to, listen, I'm talking to black women right now. I'm really trying to help you because too long you have walked around thinking that you were less than because you had big lips, fingertips, and hips. Duh, honey, you better see what the Bible see. Watch this. It was a sign of status. In her mind, Moses' marriage to an Ethiopian woman is a sign of status. He got him an Ethiopian woman, and now he thinks he's something. Now, I have to be honest with y'all. I have to be honest with y'all, okay? My, my question becomes, the Bible says that Miriam and was talking against him. So why is it that only Miriam got punished? Now, 
I have to admit, I want to be just, I want to be real with you because I'm going to talk about this in contention, contentious places in the Bible. I have to admit that the Bible does come from a perspective that is very sexist and misogynistic. So I want to admit and acknowledge my male privilege in this moment, what I'm getting ready to say. I want to acknowledge my male privilege in this moment because the writers are basically looking at Aaron and saying, I ain't mad at you, bro. They're looking at Moses and saying that Aaron is looking at Moses and saying, I ain't mad at you, bro. Because if I could get me an Ethiopian woman, I'd get her too. <laughs> so while they were complaining, Aaron's heart was really like, bro, I wish I was right there with you. Which is why she is punishing Aaron is not. Because in her mind, now I want to admit, there are, there are tents of the Bible in places of the Bible where misogyny and sexism comes in real strong. This is one of them places. Because they were both wrong. Okay? But this is written from a male, misogynistic pers uh, 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 perspective, and you have to admit that. Okay? And so I want to just admit that. But, it, but because in her mind, she thinks that uh, if, if you get a black woman like that, you must think you are something. Miriam is thinking that. This has nothing to do, ladies and gentlemen, with interracial marriage. This is always the scripture that points to interracial marriage and it has nothing to do with interracial marriage. It has everything to do with Moses being elevated because he married an Ethiopian woman. They didn't have a problem with Ethiopians. They had a problem with Moses being elevated. Am I challenging your thought process right now? Because that's what I'm after, okay? Now, I want to talk about, let's go, let's go here. Africans in the Bible, Africans in the Bible. And I want to talk about the challenges with African presence in the Bible, okay? Now, we're going to go a little theological, and then we're going to go um, um, practical, all right? I'm trying to move quickly, all right? Y'all still with me? Y'all still riding with me? Have I bored anybody out their mind? Okay. Challenges with African presence in the Bible. Here's, there's a couple challenges to spotting or realizing the African presence in the Bible. The first reason is traditional view versus textual view. There's a traditional view versus textual view of the Bible. Most of us, and I need you to hear this, most of us have an inherited understanding of scripture that has been passed down through time that has affected us in, a, in the de-Africanization of the Bible. So our traditional understanding of some persons may be challenged with them being African because history never defined them as being African, okay? Historical views of the Bible have not always been textual views. That is why we must read the Bible. Because what you believe and what's on the page might be two different things. Say, okay, um, what is written might be contradictory to what has been passed down to you. I'm going to give you an example. Finish this. The race is not given to the swift nor to the strong, but to the one who in, endures to the what? To the end. Do you know that's nowhere in the Bible? You thought that was a scripture. You thought it was that one scripture you knew. That's nowhere in the Bible. That is not what the Bible says. That was a song that came out by Milton Brunson and the Thompson Community Choir. I know I messed you up. We say it all the time. The race is not given to the swift. Yes! Touch your neighbor say, nowhere in the Bible. Can I tell you what it do say? That scripture, actually, what they're trying to reference is Ecclesiastes 9 and 11. And let me tell you how it reads. The race is, is not given to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, but time and chance happen to them all. 
Yeah, that messed you up because I ain't got nothing to do with that song we be singing. But traditionally, we assume that it's a scripture. If you don't read the Bible, you are prone and victim to someone else's interpretation. This is why, and I'm going to talk about this uh, in contentious places in the Bible. This is why slave owners did not want slaves to read. See, what you thought was they didn't want you to read because they didn't want you to go to school. That's not why they didn't want you to read. They didn't want you to read because they didn't want you to read the Bible. Because the Bible would contradict their behaviors. Their biggest fear. I'm, go back. This is, I'm, I'm, this is history, y'all. And I'm going to give it to you when, when we talk about this. This is history. Their biggest fear was you to, for you to get Exodus. Because if you read the book of Exodus, what the Bible would teach you is God is always on the side of the oppressed. So when they talk about the slave Bible, Exodus ain't in there. Because they don't want you to read that God actually delivers the oppressed out of slavery. Okay? I need, I need us to get this. I need us to get this. Um, so we have to read it for ourselves so that we are not prone and victim to someone else's interpretation. Do you know the most dangerous weapon that Nat Turner had was the Bible? Come on, know your history. Do you know that the abolitionists, the reason why the abolitionist movement, the reason why the civil rights movement was so big and so great was because of the word of God? And now they're trying to make you feel as if the black church is something that's irrelevant? We so foolish, we don't even realize that the slave owners kept literacy from us, but who introduced us to literacy? The black church. But you don't, you're not taught that. So now they try to create this theology and this doctrine that there's nothing to the black church anymore. Honey, if it wasn't for the black church, you wouldn't be sitting here where you're sitting right now. Okay? Um, that little Bible inspired Nat Turner to freedom because when you read it co correctly, watch this, when you read the word correctly, you cannot be victimized. When you read the word of God correctly, you will never be victimized again. Here we go. Another thing that we have to challenge is what constitutes and defines black in antiquity. How do we define black? Is it color? Is it nationality? Because without some sense of definition, you can argue that no one black is in the Bible. From an American perspective, how are you black? From an American historical perspective, how are you black? Does anybody know this? I want to see if you know this. From an American historical, historically American perspective, why are you classified black? Y'all never heard of the one y'all never heard of the one drop rule? The one drop rule? If you have one drop of black blood, you are considered black in this country. I'm gonna talk about it in places of contention as well. We didn't even know that. Yeah. What constitutes as black? Because we need to define what that is in order to spot the black people in the Bible. Here's the next one: significance of color versus nationality in the Bible. There's a difference. There's a difference between the significance of color and nationality. No one in the Bible is ever, no one in the Bible is ever listed as Philip Rawls the Negro. Mm -mm. They, they would list me as Philip Rawls the Miamian. Because it's about where you are or what language you, do you see that? 
we will associate color with Africa, we can define Africanism. Uh, does this person have rooting in Africa? Does this person have rooting in Africa? So I said all that to say this. Let's talk about black people in the Bible. Okay. Now, some of them we've already talked about in Genesis. Uh, we talked about Ham. We talked about Cain. Okay. Um, and and, and our, our people or descendants, there are black presence in the Bible. Um, uh, uh, Canaan is another one. But I want to give you first the terminology for uh, black people in the Old Testament. Uh, in biblical authors, we're more concerned about identifying someone's nationality than their color. But there are some biblical terms that do indicate color or reference of someone having darker skin. And I want to give those to you first. First one is uh, Sehor. Everybody say Sehor. S-A-H-O-R. Sehor. Sehor. All right. And you can find that in Song of Solomon, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse number 5 through 6. I need you to see this because this messed me up when I was researching this. God, we've been tricked. We've been tricked, y'all. Look what this scripture says. I am dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Uh-huh. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's son, sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyards I have not kept. Now, what you have to understand about the Song of Solomon is very uh, allegoric. It's a lot of similes and metaphors. So what you're reading is not what you're really reading. There's a meaning behind it. But I want you to go back to that first verse. The first verse says, verse number five, I am dark, but lovely. Everybody say, but lovely. That word dark right there is translated sahor. Sahor is translated as dark. The sun has tanned me. So we know that this is a person of color. Song of Solomon is, is written, if y'all didn't know this, to a woman who is suntanned. Did you know a whole, a whole book in the Bible is written to, black woman, to a black woman? Song of Solomon. He writing to his honey. This black woman. Sahor. Watch this. Um, Solomon pens a long and lengthy love letter to a woman of color. See, this stuff we don't know. Verse 5, but I need to lay out something for you. Verse 5 says, I am dark, but lovely. In the original Hebrew, there are no separate words for conjunctions. Catch this. Conjunctions are seen as suffixes at the end of a word. The suffix lets you know that there is a, a conjunction there. But the conjunction in the original can be can can be and or but. However, your translators chose but. So if you read it with and instead of, it changes the entire meaning. Now it says, I am dark and lovely. Y'all remember the hair, you know, the hair product? Y'all didn't know where it came from. It's in the word of God. I remember commercials come on Saturday morning on BET when I was growing up. The dark and lovely commercials. Watch this. Why is this term but used? The de-Africanization of the Bible. Because if I say dark and lovely, that's an embrace. Dark but lovely is a rejection. Do you see that? And your translators, who were European, decided, decided dark but 
lovely. I need you to look at somebody and say, I'm dark and lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dark and lovely. Not dark, but lovely. Next person I want to talk about is Ham. Uh, we talked about it a little bit. Ham uh, is another uh, 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 word that is used in Scripture. And Ham um, is uh, uh, Hebrew. In Hebrew, it actually means darkened, dark brown, or, or black. The term is only used for, watch this, the color of sheep in the Bible. You Come on, you better talk this thing now. It is coming together for you. A black sheep, a term for an animal, not a person. Don't you ever say again, you are the black sheep of your family. It was twisted in terms to make you see yourself as inferior. Next one is Kadar. Kadar means dark skin. It's in Genesis 25, verse number 13. It's the son of Ishmael. Um, uh, son of Ishmael, Ishmael is called Kadar. Ishmael's father is who? Who's Ishmael's father? Is who? Abraham. Ishmael's father is Abraham. If Ishmael's father, father of faith, Abraham. Abraham has Ishmael. Mm-hmm. And Ishmael has a son. His name is Kadar. Kadar means dark skin. I'm coming for y'all tonight. I promise you I am. You're going to walk out of here like, Lord, have mercy. I didn't know my Bible was that black. <laughs> uh, the next one is Panas, or Panasi, however you want to, uh, is shown in different ways in the Bible. That word actually means Nubian. Find that in Exodus 6.25. It's the son of Eli. Son of Eli, but the grandson, watch this, of Aaron. Uh-huh. Which ties him to Moses. You see that? Which means in both bloodlines of Abraham and Moses, there is color. So here we go. Let's talk about prominent people of color in the Old Testament. The first one is Nimrod. Nimrod. Genesis 10, verse number 8 through 12. The Bible says, Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, uh, Kalneh, and Shinar. Yeah, whatever. Mm -hmm. We're going to, come on, let's go with some more. There's some more on there. It's not verse 12, not on there? That's it? Okay, yeah. And Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kalah, which is the great city. Okay? Now I need you to see this. He is the son of... Uh, Nimrod is the son of Cush. Cush means, Cush is what now? What is Cush now? Ethiopia. Okay? Cush. The son of Cush is Nimrod. Do you know those uh, cities that are, are just named? Watch this. That means he is the founder of civilization. Catch this in Mesopotamia. Where did I tell you Mesopotamia was? 
the Middle East. He establishes uh, civilization in those places. That's what the Bible says. Next person I want to talk about of color is uh, Abram. 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 Abram was from the land of Ur, which included Sumerians. Uh, I want to translate that. You ready for that? Sumerians, land of Ur, translation. You ready for this? The black-headed ones. <laughs> now, I thought when you say the black-headed ones, that means their hair color. Then I did my research and found out, not in reference to just hair color, but in face and head. Abraham, or Abram, sorry, is from a land where people were marrying and birthing with black-headed ones, people of color. So we can assume that black blood flowed in Abram. Here we go for the next one. Next one, Hagar. Hagar, Genesis 16. Hagar was the slave of Abraham and Sarah, who was an Egyptian woman. Hagar is an Egyptian woman, an African, a person of color. Why did Sarah catch this? Now, what's the story behind Hagar? Because this is a crazy story. Abram, Abram, Sarah, real old, can't have no children, got a promise from God, going to be a father of many nations, but they real old. They got together, wasn't nothing happening. Wasn't no blue pills around that time and stuff wasn't happening, okay? So Sarah, not Abraham, comes up with this idea that says, hey, well, if I get somebody and, you know, y'all get together, then that could be what God's talking about. Because, you know, when God don't work on our timetable, we try to hook it up. Okay, so she goes gets Hagar, with it, which is an Egyptian woman. Now my question to you, and you can answer this: Why did Sarah choose Hagar? Okay, that's good, but you got to remember that's her maidservant, which is another word for a slave. So she enslaved her. So that's not, there's no longer, the thinking is not wealth and status anymore. So why would she choose an Egyptian woman? If I'm going to get a surrogate, I need to make sure she looks somewhat like me. Didn't I blow your mind this time? Because I can't have no child walking around here that don't look like me. I'm trying to blow your mind tonight. I really am. So there is something about Hagar and her color, her Africanism, that makes Sarah say, I want a child through her. If you are choosing who is going to be a surrogate, the African woman met the criteria, which implies that Sarah had to be darker skinned. Here we go. Let's go to the next one. Uh, Kadar and Kadarites. Uh, there, you can find all of them in those scriptures right there. Who are these people? They are a powerful tribe that Israel has to contend with. These are African people who, who Israel had to contend with. Very powerful tribe. They will whip uh, uh, Israel butt every single time. Okay? Um, so they were a powerful tribe that Israel had to deal with. They are also African as well. All right? Um, here's another one. Y'all got that? I want to make sure y'all got that before I move on. Go back to it. I want to make sure. Everybody got that? I know it's a lot. It's a lot of references on there. Look how many times they show up in Scripture. 
Here's the next one, Asnath. Asnath. Um, Asnath is actually, watch this, Joseph's wife. Mm -hmm. Joseph. Joseph's wife was Asnath. Okay? Go to Genesis 41, verse number 45. Let me show it to you. Genesis 41, verse number 45. Joseph. What do y'all know about Joseph? Mm -hmm. What else about him? He had brothers. They was they they was mm -hmm. jealous of him. They didn't like him. Uh huh. Okay. Y'all. So y'all know who Joseph is, right? Okay. Look at ver, uh, chapter forty-one, verse number forty-five. Uh, 44. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name uh, Zephaniah, uh -huh, that, and gave him Asnath, daughter of, uh -huh, priest of On, to be his wife. Y'all see that? Go over to verse number 50. Um, before the years of famine came two sons born to Joseph by Asnath, daughter of uh -huh, Potiphar, Potiphar, uh, priest of Onan, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh. Everybody say Manasseh. And said, it is because God has made me forget all of my trouble in all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim. Everybody say Ephraim. And said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. All right? Joseph's wife is Asnath. Asnath. Uh, she gives birth to Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh and Ephraim are the forefathers of the two, two of the largest tribes in Israel. Okay, catch this. Did you notice that when you talk about the tribes of Israel, the tribes of Israel, okay, there's, a, there's 12 of them. Did you notice that there is not a tribe called Joseph? But there is a tribe called Manasseh and Ephraim. They are the only two that are, named, that are named after grandsons and not sons. All the rest of the tribes are named after the sons. But they are the only two that are, not, that are named after the grandson. Joseph is a son of Jacob, but there is not a tribe of Joseph. Joseph winds up in Egypt. He is second under Pharaoh. He marries an Egyptian woman who give him two Egyptian children. And now those two Egyptian children have African blood. Two tribes of Israel have African blood in them. Except we don't know. Here's the next one. Bithiah. Bithiah. Bithiah is the one who pulls Moses out of the water. She's not Moses' mother, but we see the mixing of nationalities, okay? Uh, Moses, uh, I want to give you another story. Moses is on the run from Pharaoh. Everyone knows uh, this is when Moses <clears throat> is grown by this time, and he's on the run from Pharaoh. Everybody knows who he is because he was, very, he was you know, prince of Egypt, you know? And so everybody knows who he, he is, but he's on the run from Pharaoh. Catch this. And what do people do when they're on the run? They try to hide, right? When you're on the run, you try to hide. Go over to Exodus 2. Exodus 2. Exodus 2, verse number 15. 
right? Exodus 2, verse number 15. Oh, it's on the screen. Thank you. Exodus 2, verse number 15. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from, from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs there, uh, troughs to the water their father's flock. Mm-hmm. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flocks. When the girls returned to Ruel, Reuel, uh, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. Was Moses an Egyptian? No, he was not an Egyptian. But they said an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Come on. And where is he? Reuel asked his daughters, why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Verse number 21, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Do y'all see that? Now, Moses on the run for Pharaoh. He runs into Midian, sits down at a well. Zipporah and her sisters come by to feed, and the male shepherds drive them off. Moses gets up, defends them. They go home, and the father asks, why are you back so early? What do they tell him? An Egyptian rescued us. Now, here's where the Eurocentric tried to kick in right here. Because what, what they would say is, well, he must have had on the garb of being the prince of Egypt, and that's how they knew he was Egyptian. But if you're on the run and you're trying to hide, why would you have on the same clothes? Do you see that? So they're not looking at his clothes. They're looking at, y'all see that? Okay, all right. Um, an Egyptian rescued us. Something about the color of his skin has to identify he's Egyptian. There has to be black blood running through, running in Moses. That means Charlton Heston should have never been Moses in that movie. They play it every year. All right, I, I need to go quickly through these last couple of ones. I got to get to the New Testament. I ain't even got to the New Testament yet. I'm still in the Old Testament, okay? Here we go. The next one, just write that down. Cushan, mm-hmm. Cush means Egypt, okay? All right, here's the next one. Um, Phineas. One of Eli's wicked sons, the name is attached to the name of a color. We talked about it just a minute ago, okay? Here's the next one. Uh, the Cushite who tells David of Absalom's death, 2 Samuel 18, verse number 19 through 32. We already talked about this next one, Solomon's love, okay? Her name is or the reference that they give to her is, what, what is it in Hebrew? What is it? Starts with an S. It's a whore, all right? Okay, um, which is Solomon's love. We talked about this next one as well, uh, Queen of Sheba. 
We talked about her. This next one uh, blesses me real good. This next one, Abishag. Uh, go to 1 Kings. No, you don't have to. It's on the screen, right? 1 Kings 1, 1 through 4. Catch this. When, David was, when King David was very old, he could not keep warm even when they put covers on him. In other words, he's dying. Okay? Watch. From lawgivers to prophets, black people and their lands and individual black persons appear numerous times. In the veins of Hebrew, Israelite, Judahite, Jewish peoples flowed black blood. You know what it's saying? You can't have your story without us. Because we all up in now. All up and through. So I want to talk about prominent people in the New Testament. I'm going to go quickly. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene. New Testament is much more limited because after the Gospels and Acts, we're exposed to not too many people because we're basically reading Paul's letters after that. So it's not too many black people in the New Testament, but ain't too many people, period, in the New Testament, all right, after the Gospels and, and Acts. Um, Simon of Cyrene, uh, Matthew 27, 32, Luke 23, 36, and Mark 15, uh, 21. Certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Y'all see that? Certain man from Cyrene, Cyrene, the father of Rufus and Alexander. Remember those names, Rufus and Alexander. Jesus is on his way to the cross, and they make a black man help Jesus carry the cross. What we know is that Cyrene is in an African country just west of Egypt, which is, Cyrene is actually modern-day Libya. Okay? Um, Cyrenians, Cyrenians are very prominent in the book of Acts. The Cyrenians are very prominent in the book of Acts. So you have Simon of Cyrene, and then you have where he's from, Cyrenians, these people. There's a group of people now, uh, Cyrenians. Acts, the second chapter, um, he's in verse, there in verse number 10, but I'm going to read verse number 5. Now, there was, there was staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of, each one, catch this, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hear them in our own native language? Par Parthenians, uh, 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 Medes, and El Elamites, uh, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, uh, Pyphigra, uh, Pam Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, uh, we hear them declaring wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? We notice that they are speaking the language of the Egyptians and can understand uh, and can understand uh, Cyrenians. So what is, what's happening here? This is where we uh, talk about when the Holy Ghost came, and most times when it's interpreted, we think that, you know, they were speaking in uh, tongues of fire, and they spoke in other tongues, and the other tongues we think is ha ba 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 that is not what's going on here. What is going on here is they are actually speaking in different languages. That means that all of a sudden the Spirit of God hits you and you start speaking French and never studies French. 
because they literally asked, how are they speaking our language? Aren't they just Galileans? And what they're saying there, it's, it's almost like a back, it's almost an insult because they're saying Galileans are, Galileans are not educated. So I know they don't know our language. So how is it that they're speaking in our, our language? You never studied that. Those that are gathered around are amazed because they are speaking a language that they are not trained in. They are hearing the gospel in their native language. How can untrained Galileans, how are they doing this? Galileans are thought to be uneducated. What is happening here? What's happening here is the manifestation of what the Holy Spirit is going to do. I need you to hear this. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes to empower disciples to spread the good news of Jesus around the world. So the Holy Spirit enables them to speak it in a language that it can be preached around the world. The reason you hear it in Egyptian is because the gospel is going to Egypt. The reason you hear it in Crete is because the gospel is going to Crete. So when you hear it being spoken in Cyrenian, that is God's way to let us know, guess where the gospel is going, Cyrene? It is headed into Africa. Do you see that? Okay. The good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed in Africa. Jesus is not limited. The message of Jesus Christ is not limited to Jerusalem, but it will spread across the world. You will also see, um, I don't think I put it on there, but Cyrenians also show up on Acts, Acts 6 and 9 and Acts 11 and 20. Acts 6 and 9 and Acts 11 and 20. And actually in Acts 11 and 20, um, do I have that in Acts 11? Yeah. Now those who have been scattered, uh, go back. Now, those that had been scattered by persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Uh-huh. Verse number 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord. Verse number 20, well, 21. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. This is the formation of the church, ladies and gentlemen. The, the church starts as a closed community in Jerusalem. The Jewish uh, Jerusalem Jewish leaders believed if they persecuted the Christians, then it would stop this Jesus movement that was breaking out. So they persecuted them. The only problem is um, the exact opposite happened because when they are persecuted, guess what they do? They spread out. So Africans preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ early in the beginning of the Christian movement is what you just read that they were preaching the Africans, preaching the gospel. That's where we find that eventually it then leaves uh, from Jerusalem in that area and goes back into Africa, and I'll talk about that on next week, all right? Uh, this is the formation of the church. So let's talk about this. The next person is Rufus. Everybody say Rufus. Not Shaka Khan and Rufus. Rufus. Simon is the father of Rufus and Alexander. We just read that a minute ago. Rufus. Do I have Romans 16, verse number 1 through 16? Okay. Um, Romans 16, verse number 1 through 16. This first line, this first verse is going to mess most of y'all theology up, and I, and I hope it messes you up real good. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon. Sorry. I know you thought the deacon was only a, a male... Uh, position, 
But the, the that is the Bible, right? The Bible, is that what's in your Bible? The Bible say, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church. Uh-huh. Verse number two. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. Now, let me just be clear. Uh, go to verse number three. Yeah. Um, Paul, Paul is not a very nice person. Paul doesn't like a lot of people. I'm just be honest with you. He had fights with all kind of people. Him and James would go at it all the time. And so Paul was not a very nice person. So when he's giving accolades for somebody, they had to be big. And the fact that he mentioned this woman first in this list is amazing all by itself. Okay? So she had to be a bad girl. Now watch this. Verse number three. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend, uh-huh, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia, uh-huh. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Mm -hmm. Greet, uh-huh, and uh-huh, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was, mm-hmm. Greet and mm -hmm, my dear friends in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, uh huh, um, Urbanus, uh, our co-workers in Christ, and greet my dear friend, uh huh, Stacy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> greet Apelles, who uh, fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household, uh huh, uh, Aristobulus. Um, greet Herodian, uh, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus uh, who are in the Lord. Verse number 12. Uh, greet, greet, greet T and T, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. He's shown name in a lot of women. <laughs> greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And his mother, who has been a mother to me, too. Did y'all see that? Okay, catch this. Rufus is the son of who? Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is in or Africa, right? Okay, so Paul shots out, y'all see this? A black man. Rufus is the son of Simon who helped carry the cross who is now serving in the church of Rome. If his father is from Cyrene and have African blood, then Rufus is also an African descendant. A boy who watched his father carry the cross ends up serving as leader in the church and in the very heart of the empire that, the, that crucified Jesus. Yeah. Here's the next two black people that I want you to see in the New Testament. Um, you have, uh, go back, uh, Simeon and Lucius. Simeon and Lucius. Simeon and Lucius. Now, this scripture, um, don't, don't, don't fall over it, okay? Don't get tripped up, okay? Acts 13, verse number 1. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called. It is Niger. But what do you think Niger means? Black. Lucius of Cyrene. 
Where's Cyrene? In Africa. Mm -hmm. So now you have two men listed right there. These are the heads of the church in Africa. Simeon and Niger, uh, Simeon and Lucius. Th this list of leaders of the church of Antioch. And there are two brothers on this list. Lucius of Cyrene and Simon, Simon called Niger. Niger in Greek literally means black skin. This is one of the few occasions where someone is mentioned by color. But these two men are listed as leaders in Africa, in Antioch, I'm sorry. What's important about Antioch? What happens in Antioch for the first time ever? No, they already had churches. The first place that Christians are called Christians. Before, they were called people of the way. But now they are called Christians, Christ-like, Christ followers, okay? This is important. The term Christian does not show up until Antioch. So you would not have, have that name if it wasn't for these two black men. You wouldn't even be called a Christian if it wasn't for these two black men. Christianity is a term that is developed in a church that's led by two black men. Last but not least, uh, Ethiopian, the Ethiopian eunuch, doesn't have a name, but Ethiopian eunuch, he's in uh, Acts uh, 8, 26 through 40. Um, I'm not going to read all that because that's really long. Read it on your own time. But it's the story of the first. And I, what you need to understand about this is this is the story of the first conversion, watch this, of a non-Jewish person to Christianity. Because remember, when they were first starting out, they were trying to convert Jews from Jews to Christianity. But this Ethiopian eunuch is the first person that was a non-Jewish convert, which means the first person that converted their life to Jesus Christ was a black man. Scripture records of the first conversion was recorded as a black man. Now, in an effort for me not to sound racist, for you to be very clear on my standpoint, because I know all that sound intended in one direction. Revelation 7, verse number 9. The Bible says in Revelation 7, verse number 9, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Mm -hmm. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in the right white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. 
For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I need to be clear that, yes, I just taught you about all the black people in the Bible, but when we get around that throne, all that matters is you have on that white robe. Doesn't matter your skin color. It matters that you've been washed in the blood of the lamb. So I don't care what color Jesus is, as long as his blood is red. Because what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood. I want to be very clear that I'm not trying to teach you a theology that wants you to be racist. That is not what I'm saying. I'm just trying to get you to see you in the word. Because we have never been taught that black people are in the Bible. We always thought that the Bible was people of another color. And we just happened to get this faith. No, this faith has been in us a long time. And I needed you to see yourself in the scripture. Can anybody say, this thing on tonight blew your mind like never before? On next week, I'll continue in this. I'm so glad I got through all this. Um, next week, I'll continue in this. And I'm going to talk about early African Christianity. What happened to the Ethiopian eunuch? when he returned back to Ethiopia. What happens when he runs into his queen, Candace, and he shares the gospel with her? And then what does she do with her whole kingdom? What happens as it begins to spread throughout Africa? Help, let me help you real good. What happens when you get the church fathers that come up, that look at the word of God and start to dissect it? And the whole concept of the Trinity comes from a black man. With a deep theological things that you don't even understand that the first people who looked at the Bible and dissected it, we call them the, the, African, the African fathers. They were the ones that took the Bible and studied it and looked at it and came up with concepts and doctrines and it all comes back to Africa. We need to reclaim our faith, ladies and gentlemen, to understand that African, African people and black African descendants and black people played a major role in our faith. And without it, we didn't just get it, y'all, when we came over in slave ships. Okay? I want to be clear about that. I also will talk about this because this is, this is true. That there's some people that were taken from the shores of Africa that were brought over here as slaves that never knew Christianity at all. That is true. And I'm going to talk about that as well. What you will discover, though, is that faith and history has a funny thing. That some of the faith that they practice in Africa no longer exists. Because now those same people from those same shores now are Christians. Yeah. Um, there's this new movement that's rising now that wants you to have African spirituality. You know, they want you to have that now. That's what you're supposed to. And you go over there and they're not even doing that. It's all an attempt to rob us of our faith, not to realize. There are very few faiths of that time that still are around today, and one of them is Christianity. It is well and strong. You will also discover next week that Christianity was the only faith in Africa that was freely given to the people, not made. What you will discover is that uh, Islam, or, or is Islam forced people to become Islamic. Christianity was spread through conversion, not force. But we don't know that either. 
So this is why you will see Northern Africa is predominantly Islamic because the wars that happened made those people become Islamic because if you didn't, you, would, you was gonna die. But then as you come south, you will see that Christianity spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads. When you do the, the research, you'll discover that in Africa as a continent, 46% claim to be Christians and 45% claim to be Muslim. That is the predominant, predominant two uh, uh, religions in Africa. And here we are as African Americans who woke, trying to pick up some people don't even do no more. Touch your neighbor and say, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Your God reigns forever and ever. And when you're done with your hoodoo and voodoo, he's still going to be in control. When you get done with your chicken foots and everything else you be trying to do, he's still going to reign on the throne. Call your ancestors all you want to. God is still in control. We got to get this, y'all, because we have been fooled into trying to latch on to stuff that don't work. I need somebody here that can look at somebody around you and say, Jesus works for me. Jesus works for me. Listen, he works for me. He might not work for you, but he works for me. Because I've tried him for myself, and I know for myself that he done brought me a mighty long way. It wasn't Buddha. It wasn't Confucius. It wasn't Mohammed. But it was the one who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. It was the one who reigns from everlasting to everlasting. And I want to know, do I have any Christians in this house that are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That you are grateful that you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb? That you give him all the glory and all the praise? I need those people in here that ain't too tired and say, I'm a Christian and I'm not ashamed. I'm not scared. I'm not timid. I'm not backing down. I'm not trying to make anybody. I'm not trying to fit in. I know who I serve and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for it. And as your pastor